Okay, there we go. All set. Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. Father, we thank you for the privilege of worship. We thank you for the privilege of worshiping together and of the power of testimony and your goodness and your grace. So, Lord, as we continue in a place of worship, speak to us now through your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, I'll be uh, getting to Acts chapter 15, verse 1 here in a few minutes. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Uh, for those who are just joining us, we've been uh, over the last three months in a series on the, uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians. And uh, we're now uh, doing a little dive into the author of Colossians, Paul. We're doing a two-part biography on him. And he is... Uh, an incredibly wonderful picture of God's grace. This is a guy who is murdering Christians, um, who was stopped on the road to Damascus. Uh, Jesus revealed himself to Paul. And so when we think of God's grace, of being able to start over, of being able to be forgiven, of being able to uh, encounter the living Christ, his presence, which is right here now with us, the privilege of that is by God's grace and to experience his power. And uh, we see that throughout the book of Acts, but we've also seen that uh, in the church. Uh, and as I look out uh, today over you, we just heard uh, Kelly's testimony of God's power um, to bring new life and to bring healing and to bring grace. And I know in here there are some marriages that are being restored and uh, what what an amazing uh, testimony to God's grace and there are uh, new families starting that is a testimony to God's grace and so we're going to continue in that and we don't all have the mission the, the 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 assignment that Paul had and we don't all travel thousands and thousands of miles for the gospel but we are on the same team as Paul with the same overall objective, which is to bring the glory of Christ, to make him known, to know him and make him known. And Paul uh, is certainly a great example for us to look at. So I want us to look at Paul's life, not with a detached, oh, this is a cool biography, but also with what does Paul's life inspire in my life? And I'm going to try to give us some applications as we go along. So um, uh, last week uh, we started in part one and we talked about making everything we have available to Jesus so he can use us however he wants. We've talked about the power of the gospel and how that is manifest in so many ways even in our midst today. We talked about suffering and the need to have a perspective of suffering and to be able to walk in rejection and be able to uh, have the consolation that we're doing that with Christ, who also did the same things, with Paul, who also experienced the same things. Growing in skill, and we'll see that today as Paul, uh, his life uh, is an example of someone who's growing in skill and strategy. And then lastly, to have a Barnabas, to have a, a running mate to help us in the journey, and also a community to help us uh, in, the, in the journey when things get tough and uh, 
Kelly, that was the super story about the small group. I know they love to welcome new people, and uh, that's part of why we have small groups. So uh, today we're going to look at the last 15 years of Paul's life, and um, the agenda is right there. We're going to look at the Jerusalem Council, uh, the second and third missionary journeys, and then Paul's trip to Rome, which finishes out the book of Acts. And um, we're going to watch the adventure unfold. And make no mistake, God intends to unfold a very unique adventure in your life. That we are here to be part of this kingdom adventure. So think about uh, what God has put on your heart and how today's uh, message can help you uh, look for those things that God wants to do in your life and that he's already done in your life. So uh, here's a chronology of what we're doing today, at least the first part of it. And I said these chronologies are challenging to do with Paul because there aren't a lot of fixed points. But um, he confronts Peter in Antioch about how to manage Gentile believers and relationships with Gentile believers. He hears about false teachers in Galatia. So uh, he goes ahead and writes the letter to the Galatians uh, in uh, 49 AD, approximately. Then Paul and Barnabas go to the Jerusalem council, and they meet with the apostles in Jerusalem. Uh, then they come home, and uh, they want to take this good news from Jerusalem council about Gentile believers, and they want to bring it back to their churches. But they have this split about John Mark. So Paul uh, goes with Silas, Overland, and Barnabas takes John Mark and goes back to Cyprus. So God uses that temporary split in their relationship to send out a second mission team. Uh, then uh, they add Timothy and Lystra. They are diverted out of Asia to go to Europe, and they make the first European disciples in Philippi. They continue on to Thessalonica, Berea, and there they have some trouble, so Silas and Timothy stay. Paul and the other, others with him go to Athens. Uh, Paul preaches at the Areopagus. Uh, then he goes down to Corinth, where Gallio is the proconsul. And that, by the way, that's one of the fixed points in Paul's chronology. We know for sure Gallio was the proconsul in Corinth in 51 and 52. I'll hit that later. And then in 51 and 52, he writes 1st and 2nd Thessalonians because there's a brand new church in Thessalonica that is needing uh, additional support because of the response of the Jews. So uh, let's, let's sort of put some color onto that by looking at some of the scriptures that tell us what was going on here. And so uh, there's an issue, which is the clarity of the gospel. So in Galatians 2, Paul writes this. When Cephas, that's Peter, that's his uh, Aramaic name, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So there's a problem with the clarity of the gospel. Can or cannot Gentiles fellowship with Jewish people now? Uh, and Peter knew because he had been through the experience in Cornelius' house, right? A Gentile 
uh, member uh, of the uh, Imperial Regiment. So he knew that, but the people who came from Jerusalem, they were believers, but they, they were holding that you had to get circumcised and follow the law of Moses, and you shouldn't be sitting with Gentiles. So you can see this is a huge issue. It, it's going to actually de- drive whether or not uh, the, the people of Jesus become a sect of Judaism or whether they become an inclusive global movement. So in the next uh, uh, session, they go, uh, we hear it in the book of Acts, chapter 15, verses 1 to 2. It says, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. And then uh, we see that the Jerusalem council settles the matter. And the believers uh, unite around the idea that we're all saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, period, period. So here we see uh, the story in the book of Acts further in chapter 15. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon had described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. In other words, if they do these four things, they will not offend the Jewish brothers and sisters, and they'll be able to have fellowship together. So that becomes the clarity of the gospels of the gospel there's no add-ons and that's uh, that's actually our first application which is for us to get really clear on the gospel because sometimes we present the gospel and the idea is to come to church and that confuses people instead of the idea is to come to Jesus is to Uh, seek him to trust him and to be forgiven by his grace and brought into the fellowship of believers now there are things that jesus wants us to do like get baptized and be filled with the holy spirit but those are those are things that come also by grace but the, the 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 gospel has to be crystal clear we have to be crystal clear that it isn't how much we give. It isn't going to church. Those are great things, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus and only Jesus saves by forgiving our sins through his blood shed on the cross. And this is what was at stake here in this early section of chapter 15. And they come to this agreement and there's no add-ons. And we we might want to add some things on. Like if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. That's That's not what the Bible says. We have to be careful we don't add anything in. So they leave Jerusalem, they get back to Antioch, and they're excited because Paul is recognizing that what he wrote to the Galatians, he did that before the council, almost certainly, 
what he wrote to the Galatians, what he said to Peter, how he was presenting the gospel, how he was uniting Jew and Gentiles into one new human race, that was the clear gospel. That was a vindication for Paul. And so back in Antioch, he's eager to get back to his churches to tell them the good news and uh, to clarify and strengthen their understanding of the gospel. So that leads us to the second missionary journey. And now... Uh, Paul is going to make the loop. He's going to go around to the right, over around the bay between Antioch and Tarsus. He's going to go overland, um, and he's going to get all the way uh, to Antioch. He wants to go to Ephesus, but uh, we're going to see that, uh, uh, that, that, uh, that that is uh, not going to happen. So anyway, he's no longer solo. He's now running with the team. He's always training. He's always training. He's always bringing someone with him. He's really learned not to be a solo operator. And so there's a major inland Roman road between Tarsus and Antioch, and this is it right here. Uh, we were able to see this uh, just outside of Tarsus. It's uh, 2,000 years old. It's still in pretty good shape, um, despite the fact that it's running through an agricultural area in the middle of nowhere. But he's walking with... Uh, Silas with the other brothers that travel with him. And in Derby, um, he picks up a guy named Gaius. And in, and in Lystra, he picks up a guy named Timothy. And so what we see here is this, this idea that Paul has learned to sort of pass the baton, to, to surround himself, to train people. And this is our second application for today, is this idea of constantly training and growing and seeking to learn as a way of life. We can see this in Paul's journey. He becomes more and more and more effective because he's learning new ways to do things. And so it's a, it's a call to us to be eager to pass off to others what we know and uh, also to learn from others who are further down the road from us and to seek them out and to be the, the call, the, 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 the culture that I want us to continue growing in is that we are seeking to do new things. You might be here, you're relatively new, uh, you might be looking at the prayer teams at the end of the service, I'd like to do that, great. Get a hold of one of our staff and we'll get you uh, trained up and ready to pray with people. Uh, this is really true with our kids. Our kids' ministry is here not to uh, be the primary teaching uh, for your children, but to actually encourage your children along in what you're doing at home. Because obviously seven days a week is much better than one day a week, right? So, so the, the job you are doing in raising your kids and passing the baton, this is very much the mentality that Paul is exhibiting here. So we see in Acts chapter 16, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the regions of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Ah, so now the Holy Spirit is stopping them. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. Uh, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. 
Now, I just want you to notice one little thing in this passage. This, the, 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 the passage is all about they and them until the very end. Uh, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready. Now, this is the transition and the moment where Luke joins the team. Luke has been writing the Gospel of Luke, and he's been writing the book of Acts, and now he's joining, it's they, 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 and now it's we. So Luke is now, from this point on, going to be with Paul all the way through to the end, and uh, so is the other members of the team, and we can see here that they're being directed by the Spirit. They really want to go to Asia. They want to go to Ephesus. That's the flagship city of the Roman Empire in that region, but they're being resisted, and they literally try to go here, no, here, no, here, no, here, no, and they end up over in Troas, which is up by the old city of Troy uh, at the top. And so there, Luke meets them, and uh, they're directed to go to Europe. So they end up crossing over into Greece, into Europe, into Macedonia, the northern part of Greece. So they're directed by the Holy Spirit to Europe, which brings them to Philippi. And here's a picture of what Philippi would have looked like uh, in the day. Uh, there's the big Acropolis in the back. And um, you can see that the, the road, uh, the, the road that goes across Greece, the Via Ignatia, cuts right through Philippi and keeps going. And then you see this river here. Uh, and then you see up top here there would be temples and there would be a military garrison up at the top there. So uh, as we think about Philippi, this, this city is named after Philip, the father of Alexander the Great. He came here in 356 B.C. at their request, and he basically went through their entire inventory of gold and silver, and he mined that out of the ground, and that became the wealth that eventually fueled Alexander the Great's conquests all the way to India, was the money that came out of uh, this city. And uh, so I just want to stop there and, and give a, a third application, which is the way that the Spirit directed them. The, the Spirit gave Paul a vision of a man from Macedonia. The Spirit resisted them uh, from preaching in the province of Asia. So they were obviously listening. Uh, there was obviously more than one of them listening. They were confirming back and forth. They were relying on the Spirit for where to go, uh, direction, guidance, but also for uh, confirmation and power. And so the same thing is true of us. When we think about the, how the Holy Spirit wants to direct us, we may be thinking about a new job. We may be thinking about how many kids should we have. We may be thinking about uh, what direction do we want to take um, in our training of our kids. There, there are a variety of times what schools to send them to. There's a variety of times where the Holy Spirit uh, in these day-in and day-out individual decisions wants to lead us and guide us. And that's, that's what we're doing uh, here. That's what Paul and his team are doing here. They're waiting and, see and seeking. Now you see that shot there, the theater on the right. Now this is next picture looks at what it looks like today. There's the theater and then the hill behind it. You know, in Philippians 4, chapter 4, verse 7, when it says, and uh, uh, 
the, the, pray and the, the Lord will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That word guard there is a military term for the garrison. And there would have been a garrison at the top of that hill. And so he's thinking about the Philippians who are living in that city. And he's saying, you know, the Lord will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, just like that garrison up there is guarding the city. So when we're, when we're praying, think of this picture and just think of the, the way that the Lord is guarding us by his spirit, by his angelic forces as we pray uh, and be encouraged in your prayer uh, as you do that. And here's another picture of the Ignatian Way, the Via Ignatia that cuts through Philippi like I showed you in the earlier picture. And on the right here is kind of the section where they found uh, crosses engraved in the walls and it was clearly a early Christian worship site like we saw in Laodicea a couple of weeks ago. So what happens in Philippi? Well, it's a lot like Lydia becomes a lot like Nympha who we read about in Colossians chapter 4. So it says here in Acts 16, verse 13 and following, On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So this is a very big moment. This is the first household conversion. This is the first time an entire household comes to Christ in Paul's ministry, at least as recorded in the Bible. And we see that this is so important that uh, we, we try to reach entire households. This is where household-to-household -household ministry is so powerful when we have another family over to our home because we have the opportunity for the whole family to understand who Jesus is, to understand the gospel, and it's, it's so much better long-term than, than what some missiologists call extraction evangelism where you take one person and you pull them out of their household and you lead them to Christ and then you say, come to church. Now they're going to church and their whole household uh, doesn't fully understand what's going on. But if you have the household coming together with another household, then you have the opportunity. This is what happened and all of Lydia's household uh, comes to know the Lord. Uh, and she's, as I said, probably uh, a widow. She's probably taken over the business. Uh, she's got a whole, she's dealing in purple cloth, so she's wealthy. She's probably got a whole retinue of staff and slaves that are working. Everybody comes to Christ. So this picture next is uh, the riverside outside of Philippi, where Lydia was probably uh, heard the gospel and was baptized. Why a river? Why do they have a place of prayer by a river? Well, there's no synagogue yet in Philippi at this time when Paul came. So they would meet out by the river. You need uh, 10 families to start a synagogue. So uh, they're out by the river praying. Why? Well, the Jewish people would go there because this would be a natural mikvah, a natural place where they could do the ceremonial bath that they need to do uh, as they're uh, worshiping God and so forth. So uh, Lydia is baptized here. And so this goes on, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, same story. The Jews 
largely reject the gospel. The Gentiles come to faith, households after households after households, and churches are planted in Philippi, they're planted in Thessalonica, they're planted in, Dur- in um, Berea, but, but as they do that, the, the, the Jews from the previous city are coming to persecute the new believers. And so Paul is continually on the run. So finally in Berea, he says to Silas and Timothy, you guys stay here and strengthen these churches. I'll go with the other guys to Athens. So that's what happens. He delegates leadership to Silas and Timothy to straighten things out. And he moves on and he comes to Athens. And now we, we, we come to Athens and there's, there's actually a lot at stake in Athens because uh, Paul notices uh, that there's, there's, a, there's these idols all over the place. They're worshiping. And, of course, he cannot help himself but to speak the gospel. So uh, what, we, what we hear, and he's with Luke and probably Gaius and Tychicus, and what we hear now is that he's in the synagogue, he's in the marketplace, he's preaching, and he's engaging the philosophers of Athens. This is the philosophy capital of the ancient world, and they, think to, they seem to think that he's advocating foreign gods, is what it says. This babbler is advocating foreign gods. That's actually a really important collection of words. That was the charge against Socrates in 399 BC when Socrates was found guilty of advocating foreign gods and not giving due respect to the pantheon of gods, and he was sentenced to death. And that's how he died, drinking hemlock. Well, now he gets invited, after doing this stuff, to the Areopagus, and this is the highest court in the land, and Ario Ario is uh, the Greek god uh, uh, Ares. Uh, The Roman version is Mars. So you've heard of Mars Hill. This is Ares Hill. So uh, it's this premonitory of rock that you see in front, in the front of the picture, and the uh, the, the Athens Acropolis is in the background, so it's a little bit lower level, probably was filled with temples and some type of court. But he's asking uh, philosophers to repent, and that word repent means you've got to think a new way. Your thinking is not good. So I just want to read Paul's message in Athens. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens! I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. By the way, the unknown God was the insurance God. If something went wrong and the crops were bad or whatever, and uh, all the other gods were satisfied, but something was still going wrong, then they would worship the unknown God as a way of covering what all the other gods couldn't do or what they might have missed. Then he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. 
quoting uh, one of their philosophers, Epimenides, right? And then, uh, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And that's from a Stoic philosopher named Aratus. So he's quoting their philosophers. He's building a bridge. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. And so Paul, what's at stake here in the first place is his life because he could have been sentenced to death by this highest court in the land, but also what's at stake is the philosophical integrity of the gospel. And Paul is demonstrating that this gospel now ranks up higher and above all philosophy. That's what he's saying to them. And he's putting the flag in the ground uh, as he, I believe, in, in a very short period of time, achieves tremendous clarity on the gospel and what it means and the call of everyone to repent. And so later, uh, and very shortly after that, he would write uh, 1 Corinthians and he would, he would say this about the gospel. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 and following. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And so Paul plants the flag in Athens. It's a small church. He never writes a letter to this church. Um, and uh, so we don't know. There are three evangelical churches in Athens today. So it's, uh, it's not totally bereft of a witness. But Paul leaves Athens and is, makes his next stop. And this turns out to be the highlight of the second journey. 18 months in Corinth. And notice how he sets up a household base for ministry. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, the emperor, had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. That happened in 49. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So now, his household base for ministry is to live with Aquila and Priscilla, leads them to Christ, uh, trains them up, and Corinth uh, is this wealthy, super wealthy city because uh, I think there's a picture here of me in front. Yeah, this is the shopping district. There's the Acropolis behind, which is taller than the one in Athens. And they've got a, a port on the Adriatic side, and they have a port on the Aegean side, and only about a, a kilometer and a half in between. So this avoids sailing all the way around the Peloponnese Peninsula. So it's super wealthy, 
uh, dragging boats across the isthmus and uh, taxes for that. And this, is, uh, this next picture is where Paul was charged uh, by, uh, by those uh, in, the, in the trade guilds uh, for setting up insurrection uh, and by the Jews. And Gallio, Gallio, Gallio is the proconsul here. That's his judgment seat. They found that. And uh, we know he was there in 51 and 52 because the emperor Claudius wrote a letter uh, about Gallio appointing him to that spot in 51 AD and that letter was found in 1905. So we know that's a firm date uh, for the Apostle Paul. He does more household ministry in Corinth. It says uh, in chapter 18, verse 7, Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you. Because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. And so that's our fourth application, is this idea of household ministry, uh, of doing ministry in our household and having other households uh, involved in us. And when we are reading the Bible in our homes, when we are celebrating communion in our homes, um, and when we are training up our kids uh, to understand the gospel through that, uh, reading the word, and when we just stay on our normal course of action and do that when people are with us, it is a natural, organic way to bring the, to bring the, the, the life that we have in Christ uh, to others who may be in our households. So that's uh, Corinth and second journey. He goes home, and then very shortly after, he heads out on the third. Let's look at the final 10 years of... No, let's go back. Let's look at the final 10 years of his life. So the third missional journey, which will focus on Ephesus. You see in red there, he's writing all his letters. There's 11 letters there. Uh, he writes them at different times. Uh, he... Uh, uh, makes a painful visit to Corinth in 54. Then he sends Titus to Corinth. There's a riot in Ephesus uh, in his final year there. He goes to jail. We believe he writes the prison epistles from jail in Ephesus. He is freed. He goes to Greece. He writes 2 Corinthians uh, after he hears the good news that having rebelled against him, they're now with him. Uh, he writes Romans in Corinth because he plans to visit Rome. He travels to Jerusalem uh, after the third missionary journey. He expects trouble. He, does, he is arrested. Uh, he's imprisoned for a couple of years in Mer Caesarea Maritima. He appeals to Caesar. 5960, he goes to Rome. He's shipwrecked in Malta. He meets the Roman Jews. He preaches under house arrest. And the book of Acts ends. And then we have this question after the book of Acts. Was he set free? Most people believe he was. He lived for another couple of years. We don't know where he went. Um, but he was martyred by Nero in about 64 or 65. So uh, Nero died in 68. So it had to be somewhere in there. And then uh, he writes 1 Timothy and Titus perhaps on the road after being released. And then 2 Timothy is the final letter. And he writes that while he is awaiting his death sentence 
back in Rome. So that's a, a rough picture. So that brings us to the third missionary journey. And uh, there he's going to go overland again. He's going to go straight to Ephesus. He's going to really concentrate his energy and eff effort in Ephesus. Uh, this is a huge city. Uh, the Gospel of Augustus is plastered all over the city. That is the gospel that the Roman emperor is the son of God and that he's going to provide everything that everybody needs for their life. And that gospel, that good news of the emperor, uh, next slide, is uh, so this is the, the library of Celsus in the middle. And then on the right you see some arches and that's where Augustus' gospel is inscribed. And um, this is a, uh, a picture of the theater uh, and that seats 25,000, and that's where the riot in Acts 19 happened that led probably to Paul's imprisonment. And let's read what went on in, in Ephesus. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke briefly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. This is the typical pattern. Some Jews receive the good news. Most Jews do not. Then they start fighting him. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him. And check this out. He had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus probably had some kind of a school building, and Paul used it uh, each day. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and all the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. In other words, the gospel goes out to the entire province of Asia. That's 10 to 12 million people in population estimates of the day in two years. And that leads me to the final application for today, which is the idea that uh, we, we need to think about strategy and we need to think about resources that can, be, that can be used and easily transferred to others. So a good example from Paul is his letters. He writes these letters. We still have them today. So we can... He wrote those once, but they've been used by millions of people to understand what it means to follow Jesus, right? So that's a, that's a transferable resource. We also have Jamie's book as uh, a good example of a transferable resource. Uh, we have, some of you have written up how you do communion at home and you've emailed it to other people. That's a transferable resource. Mark, in starting the Friday night dinners that we're doing now, typed up a one-page, here's how you do it. That's a transferable uh, resource. Uh, our prayer guides, tomorrow's our day to pray in the Cincinnati Prayer Canopy. Those prayer guides are way, they're on the Connect Desk. They're ways to know how to pray. Paul's CD, that's another transferable resource of how to worship God and so forth. So uh, we're going to introduce a new resource inspired uh, by this. It's, it's uh, a resource we're calling Following Jesus Together. And we're going to deal with, uh, in this resource, it's all online. It's all off our website. Uh, three different areas. Who is Jesus and what is his message? Six elementary teachings to get started following Jesus well. Seven skills for every disciple. It's only 25 pages long. It's all web-based. Each section has an email address. So you can uh, email somebody if you have a question about this particular area. Uh, there's these two-minute introductory videos that Marianne and I did. And so you can use this resource as a personal tune-up, as a small group study, or 
work through it with somebody one-on-one. -on -one. And it's all online. You just have to send a link over. You find it by going to marymontchurch.org forward slash follow Jesus. And I just encourage you uh, to use that resource. Uh, check out how you're doing in the, in the discipleship development, in your skill development. And uh, we'll be adding to this. That's the other beauty of it. We'll be adding to this as we go. And so I want to thank Faith uh, and Luke Moderwell, Faith uh, George, Luke Moderwell, and Brock Lush for helping me pull that together. And of course, my bride, Marianne. So this season of ministry uh, turns out to be awesome for Paul because he starts putting everything together. And we see team, we see household-based ministry, we see Holy Spirit-based ministry, and we see breakthroughs in Ephesus. And here's some of the things that happen. There's spirit-led supernatural healing ministry that is going on around Ephesus, uh, and we're having uh, miracles happen and uh, healing happen. And by the way, this is still available today, and we're still seeing healing happen uh, here at Marymount Church. But there's a disruption of strongholds. The ones making the statues of Artemis are literally being run out of business. There are people in the streets of Ephesus burning their scrolls burning all of their idols. They're just burning them, and, and they're worth a lot of money. So th this is such a big revival that it upsets the economy of Ephesus. And we see in the middle of all this, Paul is training leaders in groups in the Hall of Tyrannus. He is leading and training people in groups. So he's learning how to be a multiplier. And this becomes the center of the Christian movement, the city of Ephesus becomes the center of the Christian movement for the next 300 years. And so this is a, a powerful uh, move of God, and uh, Paul is releasing everything he's learned, and he's giving it away, and people like Epaphras are going out and planting churches in Colossae and Hierapolis and Laodicea, and uh, others are spreading all around the world, and that's, that's Paul's strategy that comes together in Ephesus. You know, after A.D. 70, uh, when Jerusalem was destroyed, uh, it is uh, believed that the Apostle John came and served in Ephesus as the bishop of Ephesus, the leader there to lead the movement, and he, he is buried there. So there's a photograph here you'll see. There was a Byzantine cathedral built in the 5th century. It was as big as the Hagia Sophia. It's a huge a Byzantine cathedral. That's all there is left of it. But there's uh, John's home. His tomb is marked there. Uh, Luke, Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, are believed to be buried in Ephesus. And so this becomes a major strategic place for the, the movement of the gospel uh, throughout the first 300 years. And then uh, Paul goes back to Jerusalem. He is arrested there. And he is taken to Caesarea Maritima. Next picture. So this is Herod's palace at Caesarea Maritima. And the prison would be off to your right. And Paul would be brought into that palace to meet with Felix and Festus and Herod Agrippa in Acts 23 to 26. That's taking place in about 58, 59. He appeals to Caesar. And so they send him to Rome. Uh, that's in A.D. 59 and 60. He is shipwrecked. Uh, can we have the next slide, please? He's, uh, 
he is blown by a northeaster, that is coming from the top right down to the bottom left, a wind that blows them all the way across to Malta. There, uh, supernatural healing, ministry happens, and then eventually into Rome. And uh, by the way, uh, Acts ends here. Now we don't really know what happens. So, but let me tell you a couple things about Paul. First of all, he had to learn to let people go. And you and I need to learn to let people go. In the letters, Paul talks about uh, the disappointments of losing Hymenaeus and Alexander, who basically re rejected the faith. Phygelus and Hermogenes, who basically deserted Paul. Philetus, who became a false teacher. And Demas, who we read about in Colossians chapter 4 as an aid to Paul, now, in 2 Timothy 4.10, he says that Demas uh, loved the world and he deserted Paul. So there are going to be crazy disappointments where we invest in people and then they just walk away from the faith. Uh, we need to learn to see that. And Paul asked himself a question three times in Galatians, uh, in Philippians, and in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, I was worried that I would not be working in vain. That was a question Paul asked himself a lot. Am I working in vain? I think it's a message to us to focus our attention on those people who are uh, fruitful, to bless the rest, and to recognize that we're going to experience losses. People we love are going to walk away. So the last part of Paul's life is a mystery. Uh, the question scholars ask is, did he ever make it to Spain? If he was going to go to Spain, it would be about an 800-mile sail across the Mediterranean there to Tarragona. That was the capital of Hispania, which went all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. And as we know, the, the Romans even went into England. Uh, so this is the last part of his journey. And there's one of his disciples is a guy named Clement. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, he talks about Clement. Well, Clement uh, wrote a letter to the Corinthian church uh, about 20 years after Paul died. And in that letter, 1 Clement, it's called chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, it says that Paul, having reached the farthest limits of the West, was martyred and was a tremendous example of faith and patience. So by that Many scholars believe he did reach Spain. There's no evidence that he did, but that letter from Clement is, I think, pretty strong. But that's the only piece of evidence we have so far. So here's Paul's legacy, a multiplying disciple maker. He learned how to bring all these things together to make disciples who would be trusted to take that precious gospel and share it with other people. And he expressed that in his final letter. Uh, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses. Paul was always speaking to groups for the most part. Entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. There's four generations there. There's Paul, Timothy, the others, and then the others. And that multiplying mentality is what Paul leaves us. So we're going to close this morning and um, we'll have some prayer teams on the side, but 
I'm just going to lead us through a time of prayer over these five applications. Um, if you could take that next slide, please. So I just want you to rest in the Lord's presence. Um, we're going to go to the altar, and I'm going to lead us in a time of guided prayer that you'd have clarity about the kingdom gospel, that we would be training people as a way of life, that we would be relying on the Holy Spirit uh, for all of our directions, that we would see our households as our base for ministry, and that we would use transferable tools to be able to multiply uh, the faith with others. So just relax. Uh, Paul's going to lead us in worship, in a, a instrumental worship, and I'm just going to pray over us uh, for that impartation uh, of the wisdom that we can draw, glean out of the life of Paul. If you have prayer needs related to these things or anything else, then please come up to the prayer teams and they would be uh, honored to serve you.